my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-Chicago, pro-John Lithgow podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Well, last week we had our first pro-film since we started doing these this voting thing. We'll see if we can carry that on. I suspect I already know <laughs> what the answer to that will be. Yeah, this week we have watched the 2003 psychological thriller film, Identity, directed by James Mangold, starring Ray Liotta and John Lithgow, not John Lithgow, John Cusack. It would have been a much, much more entertaining movie if John Lithgow played the John Cusack role. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That would be fantastic. No, no, no. John Lithgow in the Jake Busey role. Yes! (laughs) No, John... John Lithgow in the father role, uh, the John C. McGinley one. Got like a whole new bit for the end of the podcast, a new little thing where we choose which role in the movie we would recast with John Lithgow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I like Paris. <laughs> All right. No, 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 the boy. <laughs> the little boy. <laughs> All right, you ready? Uh, okay, we're should, getting ahead yeah, of ourselves. Move into this. What if we? What have you seen? In the week, Lawson. John, uh, 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 that's my bit. That's <laughs> so petty. Oh, we're in great form today, guys. This is going to be a great episode. It's really... Jesus. Do you ever wonder who listens to this? <laughs> I know a few people who do. So before we get into our discussion on identity, we're going to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? No cinema this week, I'm assuming. No, I do have some cinema releases. I snuck in just under the wire. Some cinema releases Mm. before we went into lockdown. Uh, Literally, I left the cinema, went home half an hour later, the lockdown started. So um, (laughs) I've got actually three cinema movies to talk about. And with your indulgence, I'm going to actually read a written review that I've written for one of them. Um, It's uh, Old, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. So if you'll forgive me the the shameless self-promotion... The rehabilitation of M. Night Shyamalan stalls somewhat in Old, his new high-concept science fiction thriller, which plays like a deranged feature-length episode of The Twilight Zone. Combining the strong genre sensibilities the resurgent Shyamalan has displayed since his career resurrection began with 2015's The Visit, with some of the less admirable features seen so frequently during his nadir in the late noughts, Old has its moments, but it too often becomes lost in a miasma of half-formed ideas and poor character development. Based on the graphic novel Sandcastle, written by Pierre-Oscar Levy and illustrated by Frederick Peters, Old follows a collection of tourists whose vacation at a tropical resort goes disastrously awry when they travel to spend the day at a secluded private beach at the recommendation of hotel staff. Approachable only through a series of caves, The gorgeous cove seems an ideal hideaway for the group, which includes a family of four, a middle-aged married couple, a famous singer, and a smarmy doctor travelling with his wife, half his age, naturally, daughter, and mother. It doesn't take long for them to realise the beach is more sinister than it initially appears. This is helpfully announced by the discovery of a naked woman's body, which washes ashore, prompting panic. Without a phone signal, a few of the adults try to leave to get help, only to mysteriously black out before they can travel through the cave system. They are trapped. What's more, they are ageing at a rapid rate, approximately one year for every half hour spent on the beach. As a premise, it's a good one. Shyamalan has selected a variety of characters with competing interests and personalities, 
stranded them in an enclosed location, and turned up the temperature with a series of inexplicable mysteries. But his execution of that premise provokes unwelcome comparisons to the Shyamalan that brought us The Lady in the Water and The Last Airbender, rather than the once more respectable iteration that returned to form with The Visit and Split. And his work here is a far cry from the glory days of The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and even Signs. The problems present in old are quickly recognisable to students of the director's highly inconsistent output. The clumsy dialogue with which the largely talented group of actors are saddled isn't quite as awkward as John Leguizamo gravely instructing Mark Wahlberg not to take his daughter's hand unless he means it in The Happening, surely the most bewildering entry in Shyamalan's manic spiral. But it's certainly in the same neighbourhood. Characters routinely explain their own emotional state rather than simply displaying it, Exposition is inserted into conversation with all the finesse and delicacy of a colonoscope, and relationships between the stranded vacationers develop with an almost comic gracelessness. The cast, which includes strong performers like Gael Garcia Bernal as a decent but milquetoast father of two, and Rufus Sewell as the arrogant and, we quickly discover, racist doctor, do their best with Shyamalan's material, but too often it is simply unworkable. The actors with the hardest job, however, are Alex Wolfe, Thomas and Mackenzie, and Eliza Scanlon. They play the children who arrive on the beach as six and eleven-year-olds, played of course by different actors, but rapidly mature into the bodies of twenty-somethings, nevertheless retaining their childlike minds. The prospect of seeing three grown performers behaving like small children is an inherently silly one, even if it was accompanied by a script more polished than that Shyamalan has provided his young thespians here. But they do decent work, and a good thing, too, as the film quickly reveals them to be the focal point of the story. The phenomenon of rapid ageing is most obviously exemplified in these characters, and Wolf and Mackenzie, in particular, playing the children of Banal's character, assume the role of the story's protagonist as the film goes on, and the older characters are gradually incapacitated by both sudden old age and panicked violence. Shyamalan does cheat a bit. As time passes, these children begin to behave almost as grown up as the bodies they now inhabit, despite the fact that, however developed their brains may have become, their level of knowledge and experience has not risen to meet them. I'll let it go, though, if only because such character inconsistencies are preferable to the absurd prospect of these children navigating the darker elements of the film's second half, armed only with the advice of their increasingly decrepit parents, going blind and deaf as night falls, and the presence of mind of six-year-olds. And make no mistake, there are some dark elements in old. Once again, I feel compelled to point out that Shyamalan's ideas are on solid ground here, as is the general narrative structure. While still operating well within the acceptable confines of a wide-release studio genre film, one shudders to think what a filmmaker like Ari Aster would do with a premise like this, Shyamalan <laughs> lobs in some disturbing twists and turns. The accelerated physiology provoked by the beach's weirdness allows for rapid healing, which the film plays with on multiple occasions, and deploys to craft the movie's most creatively horrific images, while a Blue Lagoon-esque episode concludes with the story's nastiest flourish. But even these successful ideas tend to be fumbled in the execution as often as they succeed. Take the discovery that the beach's strange effects rapidly increase the development of any pre-existing ailment, a delightfully disgusting segment depicting an emergency surgery to remove a tumour as the skin of the patient rapidly begins to heal around the hands of the surgeons while the growth swells like a slowly inflating balloon is the kind of bizarre grand guignol idea that the film thrives on 
and it's put together brilliantly. Full of extended shots of concerned faces with a barely perceptible zoom that subconsciously heightens the mounting tension while Trevor Gorecki's fine musical score pulses and drones at the back of the sound mix, the sequence is one of the film's best. But Shyamalan's other experiment with the idea, that of a beachgoer whose schizophrenia worsens with age into a violent mania, is handled lazily and with very little sense of responsibility continuing Shyamalan's somewhat disturbing trend of casting mentally ill characters as violent threats to his protagonists. Seriously, it's in almost half his resume, The Sixth Sense, The Village, The Visit, Split, Glass, and now this, with virtually no sympathetic sufferers of mental illness to act as a counterpoint. Then there's probably the greatest missed opportunity. The rapid ageing itself provokes the kind of existential fear of inevitable death that all humans have, the dread that our time is finite, and the horror at the idea of finding out we are far closer to the end than we think. Old could have tackled that concept with unflinching bleakness, and in doing so really got under the audience's skin in ways that stick far longer than images of emergency surgeries and men with knives. Instead, the characters aging and dying in their lonely beach prison handle it pretty well, emotionally speaking. There's plenty of panic, to be sure, but the sheer hysteria one might expect to be exhibited at the pure conceptual body horror of it all is curiously absent, save for one character who Shyamalan quietly sends down the beach to have a nervous breakdown off camera, before allowing them to return only so he can make some shallow, brief, and all too predictable jabs about vanity. One gets the impression that Shyamalan has gotten so distracted by the various ideas he could add into the narrative that he hasn't noticed the bloat those constant additions have caused. Another draft, ditching some of the bigger concepts the movie doesn't have time for, and focusing more closely on character and, for the love of God, please, the dialogue, would have benefited Old greatly. For whatever faults may be found in Old's hyperactive narrative arc, Shyamalan's efforts behind the camera remain strong and assured. An extremely effective use of his chosen location photographed wonderfully by cinematographer Mike Giolacus, makes for a creepy and dynamic backdrop upon which our characters meet their fates. Giolacus gets plenty of opportunity to show off, especially as the film progresses and night falls, allowing the lenser to play around with shadows and the inky, mercurial quality provided by firelight. The dark caves, lit in brief spurts by a quickly dwindling supply of matches, offer the perfect setting for Shyamalan to indulge the most gonzo of his visual sensibilities, and the many scenes of group arguments, usually appearing during moments of mounting panic, are handled with a clockwork precision that is almost smug in its confidence, as the camera swoops from character to character in long, continuous shots that drive up tension and allow for some very neat moments of directorial sleight of hand. Shyamalan has always been a spectacular visualist, and he remains so here. Though the story and the characters may sometimes get away from him, the camera never does. When I began to write this review, I actually didn't expect I would be nearly as negative as I have been. I enjoyed the film a great deal, actually, and for all its flaws, it remains compelling and watchable throughout its runtime. However, it simply cannot withstand a close analysis without the clear cracks in the foundation presenting themselves over and over again. Shyamalan is a director I find incredibly fascinating, not only due to the unpredictable arc of his career, but because his ideas are always surprising and unusual. Even when he fails to execute on the potential of those ideas, his films are still interesting in their shortcomings, and old is most assuredly interesting. 
Its numerous flaws may be more obvious than most of Shyamalan's recent output, but it bears his distinctive mark through and through, and I'd rather have something like this, an idiosyncratic swing for the fences that buckles under the weight of its own weirdness, than a bland and uninspiring retread of something we've seen a million times before, even at the cost of some very rough and unpolished edges. So, do you guys have any additional questions? Anything you think I didn't cover there? No, um, I think you pretty much covered it. It's very comprehensive. Without revealing what the twist is, did you like it? I I disagree with the notion that there is a twist. I don't... It's a beach that makes you old. Yeah. It's That's so, as simple as it gets. So, so, is this like a supernatural thing? Is it not? There's an explanation. It's not a great explanation. He makes the, uh, he makes the right call in like being as vague as possible about uh, what it is that's really causing it. But um, it's, it's not structured in the way that... It's, it's not a twist in the way that you're thinking of like I see dead people or... Um, or the water hurts them sort of thing. Well, the water hurts them, yeah. I, I wouldn't call that a twist either, but it's it's not like at the end of Split where you find out that it's actually connected to Unbreakable and it makes you reassess everything that came before. It's not like The Sixth Sense where you find out that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. There's none of that where you're where it just changes what you thought the movie was. It's it's yeah, I wouldn't call it a, a twist really at all. Just just more an explanation for why things are happening. Right. I think you summed it up well. Okay. I'm glad it shot well because. That's one thing you can say about all of his films. They all look fantastic. They do. In regards to the other two movies I saw in cinemas, I saw Jungle Cruise. Oh, yeah? It's an adventure movie directed by Jean-Colette Serra. It's based on the Disney theme park attraction of the same name, set in the 1940s. Uh, It follows a scientist sibling uh, pair, Lily and McGregor Hofton, played by... Emily Blunt and Jack Whitehall, respectively. And they are pursuing the legendary Tree of Life in the Brazilian jungle, and they hire this steamboat captain, Frank Wolf, played by Dwayne Johnson, to go upriver and find it. But they are pursued along the way by a Nazi aristocrat named Prince Joaquim, played by Jesse Plemons. And also they find out there's this whole curse to do with the Tree of Life, that there's stuff in the forest to do with it. This is very Pirates of the Caribbean. It's Pirates of the Caribbean by way of Indiana Jones or the newer video game Jumanji movies. I've heard comparisons to The Mummy. I wouldn't go that far, no. Hmm. I mean, insofar as The Mummy was sort of related to Indiana Jones, but I, I mean, like, the only real connection with The Mummy is the same connection as is with Indiana Jones, which is that they're hmm. searching for this mythical thing and... There's a curse. It, it does kind of feel like that in tone, certainly. It feels like The Mummy. It feels like those Jumanji movies. Jumanji is actually a good tonal comparison. I mean, it's family friendly, but there are a few intense bits. But mostly it's just jokey and pleasantly silly and, and you can bring families to it. Um, it really does feel a lot like Pirates of the Caribbean as well. The structure of it is actually really similar. Like in terms of like the whole pirate curse and and all of that stuff. And the core trio is really great fun. Johnson is doing this very deadpan quick talker routine as this uh, boat captain. Blunt is always compelling and charismatic. But I think Whitehall is the secret weapon here. He's playing this very posh, snobby guy who is stuck on this dingy boat in the middle of the Brazilian jungle. He's the comic relief and he plays off the other two really, really well. But 
Clemens is miscast. It it took me a long time to figure out that he's supposed to be a comic villain, not an actual threatening villain. It's not pitched right. And I don't know what the hell accent he's doing, but it can't be German. <laughs> because when you want to, when you want Clemens to play a threatening villain, he can do he that. Can, yeah. Um I mean, he did in Game Night. <laughs> the narrative itself is pretty traditional and unsurprising. Although there is this, like, really silly pivot that it makes that I, I love just because of how kind of out of nowhere it is. And you'll know it the second you see it, because it's the only thing in the movie remotely like that. The set pieces are, are big and glossy and, and kind of weightless, too. It does lack the texture and the detail of the really great entries in this sort of adventure genre. I like Colette Sarah's work a lot. I, I'm especially a big fan of The Shallows. That movie he did about the the woman trapped on the rock out in the shallows of a beach while a shark circles her. That was a great film. But this is this is just a little too artificial. It's a little too clearly done on a green screen for my liking. You do get a, a good James Newton Howard score though, and and he does this very dramatic instrumental version of Nothing Else Matters that he scores. <laughs> One of the scene, one of the movie's most pivotal scenes with. Next up, there's Gunpowder Milkshake. This is the third film I saw in cinemas this week. It's an action movie directed by Novot Papushido. And it follows Sam, who's played by Karen Gillan. Her mother, Scarlett, played by Lena Headey, uh, worked for this sinister organization, somewhat sinister organization called The Firm. Sort of like a running things behind the scenes kind of thing. A, a, Mob meets Illuminati kind of deal, I suppose. Um, but she worked as an assassin for them. And due to a choice that she made that put her on the wrong side of the firm, she was f- forced to abandon Sam when Sam was a girl. And now Sam is all grown up and she works for the firm as an assassin too. And she gets given a job one day to go and retrieve some money that has been stolen from the firm's like legitimate business front. And once she actually finds the guy and shoots him fatally, before he dies, he reveals to her that the only reason he's done this is because someone has kidnapped his daughter and is blackmailing him to get her back or they'll kill her. So once he dies, Sam can't just leave the girl. And so she goes and rescues her. Emily is her name. Chloe Coleman plays her. But the money is destroyed in the process. And so now the firm is after the both of them. And they're on the run. And their only help is to go to Scarlet, Sam's mother, after all those years. This is a fantastic surprise. I was thrilled with this movie. It's brilliant. It is like bubblegum western noir. It's got such a strange tone. It's like, God, I don't even know how to put it. Humphrey Bogart mixed with neon and pop songs. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> it's just dripping with style. I thought watching it surely this must be based on like a cult classic comic book or something because it just feels Mm. like that but it isn't it's it's new and it's a unique original story and it's unashamedly feminist which of course has provoked backlash from the usual suspects but uh it it has this sort of dichotomy of the male bigwigs who are running the show and like the female assassins who actually get the things done and do all the dirty work. But it has this sort of John Wick-style world. I mean, it's got sort of the equivalent of of the hotel in John Wick. Mm. The neutral meeting ground is this diner that's operated by the firm, and there's a library 
in quotation marks. I mean, it is a library, but it's basically a front for where they go to get clean weaponry. And that's run by this almost like a Weird Sisters cool. situation um, run by Angela Bassett, Michelle Yeoh and Carla, Ju- Carla Gugino. It's got this really dry, quirky sense of humour. It's got these just awesome, creative, stylized action sequences. Like there's just so many ideas. They never want to just do something straightforward. They'll do something like Karen Gillan is shot in the shoulder. And so when she goes to the firm's hospital to get treatment, they anesthetize her arms. And so she has no feeling in them and and can't use them. So when they are attacked, she has the girl duct tape a knife to one arm and a gun with her finger on it on the trigger to the other. And when she has to confront these guys, she's sort of just swinging back to forth and letting like momentum fling the knife around to slit their throats and fling the gun around firing wildly like it there's just some really incredible uh just choices that are made to that are really interesting in their staging that i just haven't seen before and the cast is just outstanding i especially want to want to point out chloe coleman who's the girl she was in that dave batista movie my spy which is is largely sort of a forgettable family comedy kind of thing but she was brilliant in that too um, she she has a lot of potential as, a, as an actress uh, and she's really good here and you get a, a good supporting cast of a sort of male villains but also kind of not villains and not foes either sort of playing both sides of the street I suppose that's Paul Giamatti Michael Smiley and Ralph Innocent they're all very good and you get a great licensed soundtrack uh, as well as a really good score from Haim Frank Ilfman and just gorgeous lighting and cinematography by Michael Saracen, who, who just, it has this sort of sense of unreality and kind of, it reminded me actually a little bit of The Wizard of Oz in some senses, in the way that you can see that this is clearly done in a studio somewhere, not mm. outside. Like this is not a real place, this is a set, but the kind of, the way that it's shot and the way that it is presented in camera just contributes to the incredible, like, style of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like in uh, the most recent Pet Cemetery with the parts where they're walking yes. through the swamp. That's a really good point of comparison. You know that it's a set, that it, that it was built in a studio hangar or something. But it looks so cool anyway. But, yeah, but it looks so cool. It looks like this sort of weird fun house behind the scenes of a theme park kind of thing. And it's the artificial nature of it adds to a very particular energy, yeah. which is fun. This sort of crept out into cinemas here because it was, I think they had sold the Australian rights before COVID, so, I mean, the company that owned it still put it out in cinemas, but in most places worldwide, it came out as a Netflix original. So I I hope that it's gotten some some attention there because it has a a ton of really good things going for it, and I, I would like it to... I don't know, there's there's places you could take it in a sequel, and certainly it's created this world and this style that just feels ripe for further exploration it's really really good meanwhile onto stuff i've watched at home i watched for something i'm doing at university a movie that you will have seen because you did it also little fish it's a crime drama directed by rowan woods it's about tracy hart who's played by kate blanchett she's a recovering 
heroin addict. She's trying to get a life back on track and she has to navigate her deadbeat brother, her exasperated mother, and a returned lover, as well as a junky father figure who is messing things up for her as well. All as she tries to get money for a video store, a video rental store in 2005. And I would say that Tracy dodged a bullet there by not getting the money to purchase (laughs) a video rental store. All the things that happened to her in the movie... And this is the bullet that she dodged. This is an Australian movie. It's it's not one I'd normally pick. Australian movies do tend to deflate me a bit, with very few exceptions. Kind of see them, I think, uh, is, okay, is that all, all that we can do? I mean, how many movies about unhappy suburbanites can we make? <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've got to just note that it's very well made. It's just not my kind of movie, I think. It's really a snapshot of drug addiction and recovery. I mean, the loops that people are stuck in and the sort of maze-like nature of coming back from addiction that can just send you back to the start just as quickly as as snapping your fingers. I mean, the title is sort of this whole little fish in a big pond thing, that they're sort of being overwhelmed by events, but also that they're kind of stuck by forces outside of their control, not only in terms of the addiction, but in terms of this sort of lower middle class malaise that the whole cast are in. The performances are what makes it. I mean, Blanchett, Hugo Weaving, Noni Hazelhurst uh, are all really good. Sam Neill is very good in it as sort of yeah. this somewhat sinister character who is also entirely pointless and could have been cut totally and completely. And the, I, I really didn't like the intrusion of the unnecessary crime subplot in the last third. I think the movie would have just been better as a character piece, especially since the crime pl- subplot goes nowhere. I mean, the movie in general goes nowhere. I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what it's trying to say about the subject. I mean, it's it's saying that rehab is difficult. And yes, but I'm, I'm kind of going to need you to give me a bit more if you'd like me to sit here for two hours, you know? I do like how it integrates gay characters and the Asian immigrant community in Australia pretty much without comment. Like, it's just treated as a fact of life, and I, I like that. Mm. But it, yeah, it's sort of like in that weird spot where it's a movie that I'm mad on, but really only because of personal taste. Like, yeah. I, it's in- exceptionally well made, and I can see how if it was your kind of thing... You would, uh, you would like it, but for me, kind of a miss. Although it does have a killer children's choir cover of Flame Trees, which I really love mm. and now have on Spotify. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it is one of those things where Depressed Suburbanites is a genre that is very popular in Australia, particularly uh, Australian 90s cinema. When we watched this... I, look, I get why you don't really vibe with it, and I understand that, but I I did quite enjoy it. Not as much as some of the other Australian films that we touched on, but yeah, the cast really is the thing that is tying it together. Sam Neill is just fun to watch whenever he's in anything. Mm. He's just great. Hugo Weaving plays just a train wreck of a man. And, and that's, again, just really fun to watch. This is an early role for Kate Blanchett, which makes me very happy to see. No, 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 she was already like an Oscar nominee by that point. She'd been in all of the Lord of the Rings movies. By this point? 2005, yeah. Oh. Well, it's a new kind of role f- from her that I hadn't really seen. A sort of People forget how young she was in the Lord of the Rings movies. She was, like, yeah. younger than we are. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, she's incredible in this. It is 
it has what I call a headache tone, where it's just stress upon stress upon stress, these people living really sad, depressing lives. And that can be interesting to watch, and it can be done very well, but it's not always going to be someone's cup of tea. Well, I I, I didn't quite feel the movie either. Mm. I'm, I'm kind of with Lawson on it. I actually did go back and listen to the conversation you guys had about it, yeah. You guys talked about it in our episode on Lake Placid versus Anaconda. <laughs> yep. Yeah. A mo- uh, uh, episode of Varying Tones. Yes, episode 40, if anyone wants to go back and check that. So, I don't know, there's only so much... There's only so many movies about people living miserable lives that I can watch. Yeah. If I wanted to watch Unhappy People, I'd go and I'd sit on a park bench and watch the world go by. Yeah. One thing you can give credit to the movie for is its portrayal of real life. Mm. But at a point, that's that becomes so effective that it becomes draining. It just makes you sad. Exactly. And it ha- the film has this grounded tone that I think goes too far into being realistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's as though I'm watching real people live these miserable, complicated, messy lives, and movies are a form of escapism for me, for a, and for a good amount of people. So you have to be in a, a particular person in a particular mood. See, but like, I'm, I'm not opposed to movies that are about like serious domestic problems. Something like, I don't know, the first thing that comes to mind is Little Fences, the... um. No, it's not Little Fences, just Fences. Oh, sorry, I'm getting confused with Little Fish. It's just Fences, the Denzel Washington movie, which is all about sort of, you know, this kind of like lower middle class sort of trapped in unhappy life circumstances. But that movie has a point to it and it goes somewhere. I don't know. And and I, I do admit that I just kind of have a bias with Australian movies where I just, I kind of want to see us do something like really interesting. That's why I like Mad Max so much because it's like, something really unusual that we don't normally do that, you know, got us some attention. And I mean, I, I really desperately hope that with all of like Netflix and Amazon investing in, you know, Australian content and obviously Stan being our, our local homegrown streamer. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for like the equivalent of our Doctor Who, you know, not necessarily like that kind of a thing, but like the sort of like big buzzy thing that actually gets some attention internationally and does something Mm. other than what we have been doing for all these years, you know? Mm. Anyways, this is available for streaming on Binge, Foxtel Now, and ABC iView, if anybody is interested. I next watched Down. It is a horror comedy movie directed by Dick Maas. I knew as soon as I said it, John, (laughs) that you were going to make that face. Poor Mr. Mars has probably dealt with faces like that for his whole life. Yeah, probably. I apologise. It is a remake of the Dutch film The Elevator, which was also directed by Mars, and I can sell this to you very easily. It's about a haunted elevator in a skyscraper. Cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Hell Love that yeah. shit. I like haunted elevator shit. Devil from Oh, but a few that's years like back. the devil is in the elevator. This is just the elevator itself is possessed by a dead guy who was, like, stuck in there because it got struck by lightning or something. Like, it's totally out of its mind, this whole movie. <laughs> cool. Like, so the elevator's conscious. Yes, like, yeah. It is deciding it's like what to do. like, actively fucking with people. <laughs> so, so there was a possibility within this, within this plot that this person doesn't want to have, you know, revenge against people, doesn't want to kill them. 
that he could just be doing a 9 to 5 job as this elevator. Why don't we get a workplace comedy of that? I mean, this is a B-movie in the best way. It is absurd and ridiculous. I, I listed it as a comedy, but I'm constantly watching it kind of unsure whether it's meant to be or not. And part of me wonders whether that's like the language barrier that Mars has, because it, let me just double check this, but I'm pretty sure he wrote the film as well. So you're telling me that- He did, yes. There's the movie of a possessed elevator just spending its existence messing with people, potentially killing them. Well, no, trying to get revenge on the mad scientist that created it. Oh, a mad scientist as well. It's a comedy, okay. Lawson. Yes. So I, I was tell- about to get to that. I am inclined to think it is intentional. I, I actually did really want to do it as the episode this week, but the choice was made for me because it's not available for streaming anywhere in Australia. Mm. I only accessed it through a imported Blu-ray copy from America, which like looks gorgeous, by the way. It's got a 4K transfer or something. A wow. weird amount of effort to... Down the haunted elevator movie. Someone found the negatives, yeah. I guess. Um, I am so upset that this wasn't an option. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And that we watched Identity instead. I will, I will give you the Blu-ray next time I see you guys because it is uh, region free. It just has this general Gonzo tone from this really amusing, clunky script to some extreme overacting and just the overall mounting mania of everyone going batshit as the story goes on. It's fun and it's funny. And it's like... Do you get inner monologues from the elevator? No, you do not. Damn it! But it is like the most complicated haunted elevator story that you could possibly think of. It's all these conspiracies, (laughs) media whirlwinds, and armed soldiers, and the scale of it is big, and it just gets crazier and crazier. Do they try shooting the elevator? That that might be how the elevator is defeated with a uh, rocket launcher, but... (laughs) No, but... Okay, that makes sense to me, but do they try to shoot it with, like, bullets? Not really. Not really, no. But, okay, so it just gets crazier and crazier. So crazy that that finally the United States president gets involved. Oh, Christ. Because, because obviously, (laughs) people are not going, oh, well, this is clearly a possessed elevator. They're like, well, this is terrorism, you know? When the elevator when the when the elevator drops and kills everyone on it, it's terrorism. That's an oddly serious yeah, I know. assumption to make yes. in a comedy film, but Which is why I continue to to kind of wonder whether it is supposed to be a comedy film. It just goes from this kind of bizarre and horrific scene where all of where the bottom of the elevator falls out and all the people in it fall to the bottom of the shaft, including children. And then it just cuts to the White House press conference with the US president talking about what a horrible act of terrorism it was. And unsurprisingly, this is what got the film delayed out of 2001 to 2003. Mm, Because all of a sudden, this movie about that has this plot thread of presumed terrorism inside a New York City skyscraper that gets an armed military presence guarding the building. All of a sudden, it didn't didn't seem quite so fun anymore. (laughs) But, but, there's generally really good actors that are all playing to the cheap seats. You've got Ron Perlman, Dan Hedaya, Edward Her- Herman, Michael Ironside. Of course you do. You better believe that Michael Ironside is playing the evil scientist who is supposed to be German, but does not at all speak in a voice that is German. It's just Michael Ironside. <laughs> Lawson, I am legitimately upset yeah. that we missed this. But wait till I get to this next bit. You, oh, you, you get... um. Future Oscar nominee Naomi Watts um, 
as uh, as this hilariously stereotypical muckraking journalism role, like like like, like a tabloid, yeah, just like a year or two before she never would have accepted a movie about a possessed elevator. <laughs> and like, okay, let me give you an example of the kind of bizarre dialogue in here that makes me think that it is kind of a lost in translation problem. So there's this bit where she's sent out to investigate all the goings on at this this elevator, all of the strange incidents that are causing the deaths of people. And her editor's like, give me 800 words on it by 2pm and make it juicy. And Naomi Watts all but looks into the camera and says, okay, I'll pee on it. On the elevator? On the story to make it juicy. <laughs> on the 800 word yes. story? That's why I'm like, something has gone wrong in the whole conception of this thing. Is she a dog? Did they have to leave the newspaper <laughs> under her? Something, yeah, something's just gone bizarrely awry in the creation of this whole movie, and the result is, it's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I need to see yes. this. I just need. I don't want to see this. I well, need we, we're going, to see I'm, this. I'm assuming we're going to all go see Candyman together in a few weeks when it comes out, so... Absolutely. I will pass along the Blu-ray <laughs> to you then. But brilliantly... A lot, a lot of the supporting actors who are not like recognisable American names are clearly Europeans who have been dubbed over by American voice actors in post because it was shot. A lot of it was shot in the Netherlands. God bless. You keep making the. You keep sweetening the deal. <laughs> yeah, you got like really goofy special effects that add to the charm. I will say it didn't need to be almost two hours long, but it, it does. Everything you say. <laughs> Every He's salivating, Lawson. Every new statement breaks my heart more and more. It, it peters out towards the end, and you, you are kind of ready for it to wrap up when when the military comes in and the bazookas come out, stuff like that. But Lawson, uh, <laughs> the only thing I want out of a B movie is for it to overstay its welcome. Yes, that that is Ernst Hemingway's lost masterpiece <laughs> when the bazookas come out. Uh, we're we're going long today because I've still got a lot more because I watched. All six wrong turn movies. I had a bit of a week. <laughs> God damn it. Let's uh let's start off Is there any way you can sum lump some of them together? Surprisingly no, because they all are really militant about differentiating themselves from each other. Oh for oh, God's sake. God. Uh I mean they're all Can you guys just be homogenous? They're all kind of the same, but they're also like got that one gimmick that makes them really different from the previous ones. Then there's the last one, which is actually okay. Yes. I'm not talking about that one, because it's the most recent I saw that in cinemas. <laughs> I'm talking about the original two thousand and three movie and then the five director video sequels. Alright, let's get through yes, this. We'll start off with Wrong Turn. It's a slasher movie, it's directed by Rob Schmidt. Uh, it is about six stranded college students who run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. And uh, it does what it says on the tin. It's it's a trashy old school slasher movie. It's the sort of thing that defies analysis. I mean, what is there to say? It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre without the satire. I mean, really, if you are looking for a hillbilly cannibal movie to watch, just watch the original Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and call it a day. But Or Hills Have Eyes. Or the Hills Have Eyes, yeah. The That's remake the desert, of the Hills so. Have Eyes. I'm not too big a fan of the Wes Craven Hills Have Eyes. No, of course, the remake. But uh, I will say that the sequel to the Wes Craven Hills Have Eyes, also directed by Wes Craven, 
is one of those movies that is entire, almost entirely comprised of like flashbacks to the previous movie, kind of like that Silent Night, Deadly Night sequel. But it's all of the surviving... Well, kind of like Evil Dead 2. But one of the flashbacks is instigated by a dog remembering what happened to it in the first movie. And I will give it a full grade point for that. Mm. <laughs> Anyways, wrong turn. It's competently done. It's got a few neat set pieces, including one of, involving like a fire watchtower that they're trapped at with the inbred brothers down below. That probably should have been the finale, actually. And there are worse slasher movie casts. You've got Eliza Dushku here, Desmond Harrington, Jeremy Sisto, and uh, a scene-stealing Julian Richings as like this gibberish spouting wacko who's one of the brothers. And there's actually less dead meat than most. Like there's fewer cast members to be picked off. It causes a slower rate of attrition and it lets you spend more time with the characters. I mean, it's not great, but I can describe them all, which is never a guarantee in these kinds of movies. If it sounds like I'm damning by faint praise, I am. It is not too gory comparatively to, uh, to some of the other types of movies in this genre. Um, but the later ones were direct to DVD, which... Uh, sort of unshackled them a bit from the MPAA and allowed them to be unrated yeah. in some instances. And in this first one, at least, the eating people element is not leaned into nearly as much as the later ones will. It looks like network television, though, but still looks better than any of the sequels. It's available for streaming on Stan. Okay, wrong turn two, dead end. Joe Lynch directed this one. In this one, a reality TV cast and crew run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. This is grimier and grislier and way more mean-spirited than the first movie. It starts out okay. You get this reality TV setup that is a, is a decent idea. They're all sort of split into teams. There are these portable cameras that are all linked back to the van who sees all of the feeds. Uh, it squanders a lot of that potential, though. The, the game itself kind of seems like a goofy Survivor knockoff. Expands the mythos, if you want to call it that. Um, and The lore. The deep and compelling lore. There are some okay characters. I mean, there's the ones to root for, and then there's the hateable dead meat that you're kind of happy to see go. Um, the best is this Bear Grylls-like host of this um, reality TV show who the minute he finds out there are murderous cannibals hunting people, he goes all Martin Sheen at the end of Apocalypse Now and like draws war paint on his face and starts hot cool. running around the jungle. The second half, particularly the third act, devolves just totally into splatter. And I like horror movies, but I have my limits. This is just revolting. It's all giblets and slop. It really leans into the eating people thing. One of the characters being force-fed a stew made out of a friend. It's just gross. And it revels in it in a way that... There's, there is always a line in horror movies. There's a line that separates entertainment from just filmed cruelty. And I think that this movie is in frequent danger of crossing that line. It does survive the transition to direct-to-video well enough, though. The first installment was hardly stylish. But the most obvious loss here is the halfway decent cast of the first movie. I mean, no one's winning awards here. No one's outright bad either, though. Although it does include a gentleman with the fantastic name of Texas Battle. Uh, so there's that. Um, Remember the Alamo. Wrong Turn 3, Left for Dead, directed by Declan O'Brien. In this one, survivors from a crashed prison transport truck run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. I love the repeated use of the phrase run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. This one this one's actually pretty decent. It's less gore focused, there's more it's more action focused actually. And it's a good idea to make the protagonists sort of at odds with each other. I mean there's this handful of cons and then there's a couple of guards. Uh there's an on the run survivor from like the cannibals' previous victims. 
uh, who they come across. The threat is not only from the outside, the threat is from, like, within the group as well and them turning on each other. It's kind of like a hillbilly predator. Ooh. The, the, it's real, like, the cannibals are like guerrilla fighters here. They take shots, they set traps, and they pick them off one by one because they're so outnumbered by these convicts. But it, it does look a little bit better than the last. The actors are all still hit and miss. Most of them are British actors playing American. It was filmed in Britain, I think. Uh, that's fairly obvious with the accent work. And the makeup drops in quality on the, the cannibals. It has an awful, awful final scene, though, that kind of feels like a mandate to set up a sequel uh, and kind of goes at odds with a lot of the character development of the of the previous 90 minutes. But in general, it's a pretty competent, if unremarkable, sequel that makes a few good choices along the way. Wrong Turn 4, Bloody Beginnings, also directed by Declan O'Brien. In this one, skiers taking shelter from a storm in an abandoned asylum run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. This is the best one so far. This is the one that, like, fully commits to being an old-school slasher sequel. I mean, it's technically a prequel. It need not be. It doesn't exactly track with the information we know from the first three. But it makes the nice choice of having this sort of winter aesthetic, where they're up in this mountain asylum in the woods. Uh, it, they're all snowed in a snowstorm. And it keeps the actions indoors in this big facility. Like, they can't really leave because they'll freeze to death. And it's very Friday the 13th in structure. I mean, it just starts out with young people hanging out for 40 minutes with copious amounts of sex and nudity. One or two of them get picked off quietly before finally the slasher runs out and chases them around for the rest of the movie. I mean, it's a cliche because it works. And I haven't seen one of these for a while. So I was kind of okay with with this being what it was. It is a really largely anonymous cast, though. They kind of look like they're all in between auditions for CW shows. There's <laughs> a couple of store brand Jared Padalecki's in there. That's such a sad thing. Like, imagine being discount what's-his-name or store brand whoever her face. It, it's most of them enter and exit the narrative indistinguishable from each other and they all look a lot alike it's pretty helpful actually once they start to be parred down by the cannibals it, probably too many characters all in all all of them introduced at once as well and they're all dating each other and it's kind of hard to track who's with who and who is who they could have used more definition it's more brutal than three but it's more reserved than two so it kind of walks the line well and but it does make a good loop Good use of this location, which is an actual old asylum that we're filming in. The makeup is still a bit dodgy, though. One of them, one of the cannibals now just looks like someone's got a Halloween mask on their face. But it has, like, a grimly amusing ending, which is a little sudden, but it is sold by the introduction of a franchise theme song, um, <laughs> which is a, a rock ballad, a soft rock ballad, titled Wrong Turn, that plays over footage of the cannibals, like, carting the bodies away. <laughs> See, doesn't that sound like the kind of thing that'll play at the end of your Killer Cannibal movie? It should be screamo music. <laughs> it should be black metal. It should be the ugliest noises the human body can produce. 
Well, wrong turn forward just it executes on its formula exactly. And that's sometimes that's all you need. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that this is the best of the wrong turn franchise. And if you are going to see any of them, well, if you're going to see any of them, see the reboot because that's the one that's actually doing some interesting stuff. But if you're going to see any of the old ones, see Wrong Turn 4. Right. Wrong Turn 5, Bloodlines. It's O'Brien again. Uh, he's back for a third time. In this one, teens on their way to a music festival and the sheriff who arrests them run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. Uh, this is a sequel to the prequel. It kind of has to be with how the third one ended. But it's a dip back down in quality. It drags. It lacks energy. I do appreciate O'Brien's insistence and the franchise's insistence, frankly, on doing new things with each instalment. Here, this is basically Assault on Precinct 13. This is basically the cannibals, like, assaulting this police station in the middle of the night, trying to rescue their, like, cannibal uncle. It's not a bad instinct, but the baddies are almost always passive. They really only attack the main characters when they venture outside of the police station for whatever reason. And the result is sort of an increased focus on characters and relationships, which is a pity because the characters are the least interesting in the series. It's not helped by a once again, obviously British cast playing Americans. I will say props to Camilla Arwoodson and Roxanne McKee for being the only ones who can land the accent consistently. But you get Doug Bradley, Pinhead himself, from Hellraiser, playing like the the cannibal uncle that they're trying to get out of there. He's suitably threatening, but he is also the very worst accent mm. offender in the thing. You mm. also get a brief early role from Finn Jones, the Iron Fist guy. Damn it, Lawson. Oh. Yeah. It's better than the second one, but it is a letdown from the trashy fun of four. It's just lost the energy at this point. Finally, there is Wrong Turn 6, Last Resort, directed by Valeri Malev. And this one's interesting. It actually takes its cue from some psychological horror films and, and gothic horror stories, sort of a, uh, a Edgar Allan Poe kind of thing. I'm just fucking with you. It's about a group of young people visiting a mountain hot springs that run afoul of inbred cannibals in the woods. <laughs> so, so this is clearly the end of that original franchise. It is another pivot. This franchise, at the very least, has avoided Friday the 13th Syndrome of just being the same thing each movie. I will give it that. This guy is adopted. He finds out, he's contacted that his biological family has died and he has been left with this uh, hot springs resort in the mountains. And so he brings his friends up there to go see it. And the the creepy, incestuous brother-sister caretakers there are thrilled to see him. And you've got to see where this is going, right? That this is him coming home to his lineage. He's a member of this family. Like, it kind of gave me an H.P. Lovecraft vibe in terms of that whole people... Yeah, people figuring out their lineage, which in turn, like, that bloodline has a strange power over them and they them succumbing to the darkness of their family line. The problem is, is that this is a premise that is not relying on thrills. It is a premise that is instead relying on acting and the script. And the script has never been a strong suit in this franchise, but the acting here is the worst in the whole series. Uh, again, it's mostly British people. This time, none of them have any handle on the accents. You get terrible new performances by the villains. Uh, Sadie Katz, in particular, is extremely over-the-top and unconvincing. The characters are uninteresting. They're shallow. They're interchangeable. I would never buy this whole descent into madness idea for the main character. And what even is the continuity anymore? I don't even know where this is supposed to be set in the grand scheme of things. Because it was seemed to disqualify itself from being either a 
sequel to the sequel of the prequel, or just being a fourth in the line of the first three, you know? But it is, I will say it is certainly the most technically proficient of the director video sequels. Milev has a few interesting ideas. He kind of juxtaposes a the hunting of a deer with the hunting of a person, cutting between these two hunts as they go on. Uh, and there's like a weird trip uh, sequence where one of them is drugged by the cannibals that is well edited by uh, Don Adams and Cameron Hallenbach. But, and get this, because this is bizarre. There are a lot of like scenes, there's like, a notice board with like missing persons photos on there. There is a, you know, scene where the guy is looking at all of these photos of family history in the resort. And unless it is one of the main actors who is being featured in there, everyone else, and I'm talking dozens of faces, are entirely blurred out. Sometimes within, within the same photo. So you'll have like, People standing all next to each other in a line and one guy's face unblurred because he's one of the actors and then a whole bunch of people whose faces are blurred out. And I looked into this and apparently the, the, the makers of this were sued over the use of a missing Irish woman's photo without permission. And that led to a recall of the movie and I'm pretty sure that they it, it would appear that they just ended up saying like, screw it. Blur out every single stock photo. Blur out everyone that is not a credited actor on this thing. Yeah, it's not boring or anything, but they're clearly out of ideas. Come to think of it, this is actually very close to the trajectory of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. But, uh, yeah, I was kind of glad to see the back of it at this point. But lastly for this week, I saw Hulk. Ang Lee, 2003 superhero film based on the character by Stanley and Jack Kirby. It follows Bruce Banner, here played by Eric Banner. He has this mysterious repressed past and he is exposed in a laboratory accident to gamma rays. And so he hulks out and becomes this giant green Jekyll monster to Banner's hide. No, giant green hide monster to Banner's Jekyll, I should say. And the military pursues him, as does his uninteresting love interest Betty Ross, played by Jennifer Connelly, and his devious father, David, played by Nick Nolte. I will say, just to say some nice things to start off with, this is a very against-type take on the superhero cinema genre. I mean, Ang Lee is an odd choice. He did this between yeah. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. Um, it's more of a drama than anything. It's it, There's very little action for the first two-thirds. There's this focus on the father-son relationship, the idea of nature or nurture. If, you, if your dad's a lunatic, does that mean you are? The idea of the anger within... I mean, it's kind of dull, though. It's it's a slow psychodrama with a big green guy and mutant dogs, and it kind of fails to pull that mixture off. And the traumatic background is a really weird swerve for me on Hulk. You know, this repressed stuff from his childhood. It doesn't quite work. Uh, the relationship between Bruce and Betty is a miss. But Nick Nolte is fantastic. He outclasses the movie he's in. He's just going out of his mind, chewing on the scenery... Um, becomes the absorbing man. Yes. I mean, the best moments are his, like, tense, dramatic monologues. It, I mean, and that voice. I mean, it's like he's gargled gravel. But uh, Sam Elliott as General Ross is all always fun as well. Hulk is a little more comic accurate. It's like a bright green. Yeah. I mean, he, he kind of looks like the comic version of the Hulk a bit more than, say, the Ruffalo version or something like that. But he doesn't look like Eric Banner. And he is 
a little bit goofy. He gets a bit, mm. or like he looks a bit odd and a bit strange. The CG isn't great. I mean, I noticed in this movie a lot more than I noticed in any of the Avengers movie, the incongruity of him growing so big and still having his pants on. But uh, you get an interesting like comic style of filming with split screens and swooping cameras and showy transitions. Sometimes it works, but mostly I, I think it's a little too self-conscious and silly. I mean... It can be quite distracting. Yeah, we, we really are here f- finally working up to them really figuring out comic book movies and what works and what doesn't. I mean, it's the one, there are, there are the, there's the Marvel style and then there's the Christopher Nolan style. And those are about to come into play over the next few years in terms of the chronology we're talking about here with Batman Begins and Iron Man. And, and really after that, I think it sort of clicked. But yes, this is, this is among the Daredevils and Catwomans of them trying strange new things in the early parts of the millennium. But yeah, it's available for streaming on Netflix, Stan, Foxtel Now, and Binge, if anybody is interested. What about you guys? Alright, so this week we have watched three movies, all from the same franchise. We have watched the Fear Street trilogy from ah, Netflix. I've heard good things about this. This trio of films, consisting of Fear Street Part 1, 1994, Fear Street Part 2, 1978, and Fear Street Part 3... 1666. All three of these films follow groups of teenagers in the town of Shadyside who get terrorized by an ancient evil responsible for a series of brutal murders that have plagued the town for centuries. I really dug these. Yeah, me too. Each movie feels like a different era of slasher film. 1994 feels very much like something like Scream, with the pop culture references, with the general tone of things. Then you've got 1978 which feels like the original Friday the 13th. That one's set at a yeah. summer camp. And then you get 1666, which feels like... not They've been comparisons to something like The Witch, like Robert Eggers' The Witch, but I compare it more to something like Apostle. It's a period horror. It's a period horror set in 1666. And each of them is shot slightly differently to match each of those different tones. It's... Very, very good slasher filmmaking. Yeah, and just like before we go much further, even though it is based on a series of young adult fiction, it's like pretty brutal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, the Fear Street novels written by R.L. Stein were more yeah. far more brutal than Goosebumps ever were. Like, Goosebumps was for kids, Fear Street was for teenagers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And th- these movies do not pull their punches. You go on to the, um, the IMDb Parents Guide, it's all sex and nudity, severe. Violence and gore, severe. Frightening and intense scenes, severe. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Like, they, they seem to go even beyond the, the sort of, the teen PG-13 nature of the Stein books. Oh, absolutely. These... The filmmaker, Lee Janiak, does a really good job at not only f- photographing the scenes, and the killers especially. For example, there's um, one of the killers, the Skull Face Killer, who's in this Halloween costume with a skull mask, this flowing robes that really evoke Ghostface. And then you get the Camp Nightwing Killer, who has essentially feels like a representation of the era they're from, but I don't know. 
we also get a good end up really caring about the characters. Like character, the characters are never forgotten in the scramble of things because there's this deep yeah. interconnected story between all three of them. It is they are so intrinsic to each other, so that at some point in 1978, um, the second part, you remember stuff that you saw in the first movie and go, "Oh shit." Mm. These characters don't know this. It's inter- like it, it strikes me as interesting that they that like it's structured backwards in time rather than That's forwards. That's very important. Uh because yeah. the I what I clicked onto right near the end of part 2 was that this is a movie about generational trauma. Because Shady Side borders on to another town, like together they are the town of Union, but there's Shady Side and there's Sunnyvale. Shady Side has this history of serial killings, real tragedies, but Sunnyvale is perfect. The, there's pristine, clean. There's like no murders, no crimes, nothing. And when you look at the demographic makeups of these two parts of the town, you start to get a sense of the symbolism here that Sunnyvale is sort of feeding off of Shady Side to to to. Yeah keep itself appearing perfect. The movies are really held together by fantastic art direction. All of the killers look brilliant. All of them are shot brilliantly. And also the cast. Specifically, Kania Madeira, who plays Dina. She is brilliant in these. She gets a lot of different levels to play with in terms of intensity, in terms of humor in terms of seriousness she does a very good job here and also fantastic performances from ashley zuckerman who plays nick good and also nick good's ancestor solomon good jillian jacobs who plays constance berman sadie sink who plays ziggy berman Olivia Scott Welch. In 1666, basically the town is made up of... The town is populated by the actors from the previous films in new roles. Mm. And in 1666, they're all given these sort of emerging New England accents. And some are better at it than others. I have to give major props to McCabe Sly, who plays Tommy Slater from the second film. And Mad Thomas from the third one, who goes hard. He chews the scenery. He feels like he's from The Witch. Like, straight <laughs> yeah. up. He's got this, like, crazy look, this matted Weird hair. harbinger. It's, oh, so effective. Yeah. They're all really great films. They all really work together as a trilogy. You can find these on Netflix. They were released, I think two or three weeks apart from there each other. There was an initial plan to release them in cinemas. I think they were released on the same day. Oh, no, they were, you're right, they were released apart from each other. Yeah, they, were, in, they yeah. were initially meant to be released in cinemas a month apart from each other. So, like, one mm. each month. But COVID happened, and Netflix yeah. was the deal that was organised. Well, it seems like it's done really well for them. I know I know that the, uh, the director... Um, has I think I think the director has talked about she wants to do you know another trilogy standalone stuff TV shows set with that style like like they're talking about how they can expand it out like it seems like it's been pretty successful for them yeah yeah I think that would be really sweet because 
we get a good look at some of the killers from Shadyside's history, but there are some others that I would love to see explored, because there's got such evocative imagery associated with them. For example, one of them is a little boy with a baseball bat and this creepy mask, and when you see him walk out, he's just banging the baseball bat on the ground in a very intense, threatening way. It'd be cool to see what else has been happening in Shadyside and Sunnyvale, and having a look at the other potential horrors, I do... I know that our mum has said that we used to own a lot of the Fear Street books, but as far as I can remember, we own Fear Hall, which is like a college slasher movie, which I would really like to see this director. Are any of these like direct adaptations of the books, or are they original stories? No, it's it's using the vibe and some of the history of the town in order to tell this new story. Also, major props to the film for having really good uh, POC representation and also LGBTQI representation. And also, as a trilogy, it examines the witch trials and the yeah. consequences that still are still felt to this day from that. Yeah. So this was a great series. I'd recommend it. I've heard it's got like a good licensed soundtrack as well. Oh, absolutely. Oh, mate. Like the first. I heard it uses "Don't Fear the Reaper." They do. Yes, in "Don't the Fear the one. Reapers" in the second one. But the first one, it starts with a one-two punch of "Closer" by Nine Inch Nails and "Fear of the Dark" by Iron Maiden. <laughs> Which instantly just got me hooked. It, it uses two different versions of Sweet Jane by the Velvet Underground, and two different versions of The Man Who Sold the World by David Bowie. It's just, The intro mm. sequence in the first movie is remarkable. It hooked me straight there, because it was so well done. In the opening scene, however, you would recognize uh, a particular moment to directly resemble Scream. Yes, but anyway, we've been talking about what we've been watching this week for a bit too long, so why don't we move on to our deep dive? Yes, now we're going to play for you the trailer to Identity. There was a storm. There was an accident. We had an accident. And we got stuck, and we couldn't get out. We couldn't get out because of the storm. It's dead end. You the manager? Officer Rose. Transporting a prisoner here. But the roads were all flooded and I could use a room. I don't think we can get out tonight. I'm not staying here. Are you out of your mind? There is no place else to go. Sense. 
Maybe there's some connection between all of us. Like what? My birthday next week. Me too. Me too. That was the trailer for Identity. It is a thriller, constantly flirting with the idea of taking that one final step and becoming a horror movie, but never actually doing so. And it is directed by James Mangold. It's set in a small, remote motel in the middle of the Nevada desert, where a torrential rainstorm has stranded a group of strangers for the night. There's limo driver Ed Dakota, played by John Cusack, whose gig transporting arrogant has-been Caroline Suzanne played by Rebecca de Mornay, back to L.A., is upended when he accidentally runs over Alice York, played by Layla Kenzel, who was standing in the road with her husband George, played by John C. McGinley, and son Timmy, played by Brett Lower, tending to their broken-down car. There's Paris, Nevada, played by Amanda Peet, a Las Vegas sex worker who is travelling back to her hometown in Florida to make good on her dream of owning an orchard, but her now former occupation proves to be a point of conflict with both the misogynistic motel manager Larry Washington, played by John Hawkes, and a young couple, sleazy Lou Isiana, played by William Lee Scott, and his new wife Ginny Virginia, played by Clea Duval, whose recent spur-of-the-moment nuptials can only be described as unwise. <laughs> Lastly, there's Samuel Rhodes, played by Ray Liotta, a cop transporting a deranged murderer named Robert Maine, played by Jake Busey, cross-state for a court hearing. Settling in for the night, the group keep to themselves, save for a handful helping tend to Alice until floodwaters lift and help can be summoned. But all thoughts of a standard and uneventful layover vanish when Maine escapes from his shackles and disappears into the night and the motel guests start being picked off one by one. So before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we made of identity. Why don't you start us off? Are you ready, Jean? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This movie is a mess. It is so wild and weird. You don't really get a good grasp on any of the characters other than Ray Liotta, Paris, and Ed. It's it's trying to do so many things to the point where it doesn't know what it wants. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I think my issues with this movie come down to story and script. Mangold's direction is actually quite capable. Mangold being quite a good director. We've talked about Logan before, which is another one of his films. So as a director, you know, visually the movie is well done. The location is great. The ever-present rain and storm is effective, but I'm meant to care more, and I think the story holds that back. You got me queued up, Sean? Yep. Three, two, one, go. So I actually find myself in the unusual position of being a little bit more impressed with this movie than you guys are. Normally it's the other way around. I find this to be pretty tense and moody. I like the unusual places that it goes even if i think that the ultimate explanation is kind of a mess 
I don't know. I I will admit I am a sucker for these kind of closed circle thrillers, but we can get into that. Not much of a production history, really, this week. There's there's really not much of an internet record on anything particularly interesting happening in the making of Identity, but I have a few little items here, although I, I must stress that they are all from the Internet Movie Database trivia section, so... Uh, its accuracy may vary. Just a few little tidbits here. Apparently, in the original draft, the killer was supposed to be a female Australian teacher, but there was nervousness about what parents' groups would think of having a teacher killing everyone. Boo. I'm sorry, but, like, parents' groups having an issue with a killer in a horror movie? Mm. They're gonna have issues anyway, so... Well, this is why I say that the IMDb trivia page, is its accuracy cannot be vouched for. Mm. Parents groups are going to have issues anyway, so just bite the bullet and do the thing you were planning to do. It was an unpleasant shoot for the actors. You get all that rain, obviously, all mm. of the time. And it needs to be really heavy rain for it to show up properly mm. in camera. So we're not just talking about regular rain. We're talking about, like, driving rain, like like a shower head, basically. They are drenched. Yeah. There is, and I, I noticed it, but I didn't notice what he was saying in the original version before it was dubbed over, but I did notice that it was dubbed. But did you guys see that one of Alfred Molina's lines is dubbed at one point? No, I didn't notice that. It is, what he's saying doesn't match the way his mouth is moving, because in the original filming of the scene, he said, Malcolm is in the middle of, and then the show Malcolm in the Middle came out. <laughs> And they redubbed it so it was Malcolm is in the midst of. Just keep Malcolm is in the middle of, because it still works within the context. People aren't going to think about Malcolm in the middle. Several different endings were apparently filmed for secrecy to protect the final twist. And lastly, again, can't vouch for the accuracy of any of this, but it's kind of a fun story. A studio executive was apparently very impressed by the Jake Busey dummy that had the bat shoved yeah. down its throat, and so kept it for himself once the movie ended. Kept it in the closet in his office, uh, and at one point, it really scared a cleaning lady who opened the door to uh, to clean about the place, and after that, it was removed. Aww. Yeah. Hmm. Just keep it in your house, my man. Don't, don't keep it in your office. That's weird. I don't know. Like, I can certainly imagine a scenario in which that guy's wife was like, no, we are not keeping... A full-size dummy of, of uh, Jake Busey with a bat shoved down his throat in our house. It's not happening. Like, it's not the bat shoved down his throat thing. I didn't let you get that full-size Stormtrooper outfit. I'm not letting you get the murdered Jake Busey dummy. <laughs> it's one or the other, honey. Stormtrooper outfit or dead Jake Busey? Jake Busey looks kind of scary anyway, so that's probably the reason why. See, if I'm Jake Busey, I'm kind of like, I don't want anyone to have, like, a full-size dummy of me but me. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I was Jake Busey, I'd be like, uh, can I have it? Actually, thanks. I feel like I want, like, control over whatever happens to that thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, if need be, you can burn it in your backyard after yeah. filming. So, here's where we get to the, the actual stuff that is verifiable and not just on the IMDb trivia page. It was released in America on the 25th of April 2003, where it was distributed by Sony Pictures. Its widest release was in 2,733 theatres. It opened number one against Confidence, It Runs in the Family, and The Real Cancun. But its only true competition was Anger Management, which was in its third week, and Holds, which was in its second week. It was a financial success. 
It was the 61st highest grossing film of 2003 and it made $90 million on a $28 million budget. And it was released in Australia a few months later on July the 31st. Its widest release here was in 178 theatres and it made $2.9 million of its gross here. It was nominated, however improbably, in your guys' opinion, I suppose, for a few awards. It was nominated for a Saturn Award because, of course, it was. It was nominated there for Best Action Adventure Thriller Film and also for Best DVD Special Edition Release. Oh, that's nice. It was also nominated at the Teen Choice Awards for Choice Horror Thriller Movie. But in any case, that's it for the production history of Identity. It is really not much there. There's not much that happened behind the scenes that's worth noting. So why don't we just move on to the film proper. I know in the past that when we've talked about twist movies, we have discussed the twist at the beginning because after that we we can sort of talk about how it sort of is blended into the narrative. Here, I don't think that's the right tack to take because I think the movie pretty much changes genres once the, the twist is revealed. Mm. And so I, I think with your, your guys' agreement, perhaps it would be best to start with, to sort of go chronologically through the different stages of the movie. Okay. As in the character stuff, the gathering, moving on to some of the slasher stuff, and then sort of the bonkers direction that it goes in. So I mentioned when I did my brief thoughts that I am a sucker for these kinds of movies. It's sort of people trapped in an enclosed environment with a threat that's sort of taking them out one by one. I mean, it's alien it's The Thing. It's a lot of my favourite movies. I like that dynamic. I think it's pretty much automatic tension. You really have to work to screw it up totally to, to really rip all of the tension out of it, uh, a premise like that. But this felt, to me, like a like a pretty moody sort of setup. I mean, this Bates Motel-esque, you know, motel in the middle of nowhere, you know, this driving rainstorm, all of these strangers coming together... The road's all flooded in. And I think that the movie does do a, a, a decent job of setting up a few conflicts just from the very get-go with, obviously, the car accident and the introduction of the Jake Busey character, the, this transported mm. convict. It's just so weirdly paced. Yeah, it, it it's set up in a strange way because they sort of play with the linearity of it in a way that I don't think was necessary, where you see Paris... No, you, you, you see the car... What's the sequence? It's the car accident, then it's the car breaking down, and then it's Paris losing her shoe. It's the car breaking down, then Paris losing her shoe, then back to the car having broken down, and... The car accident, right. In front of all of that, we get the scene of John C. McGinley arriving at the hotel with his wife yeah. and asking for help. Yeah. So it's sort of this strange fracturing of the chronology of those events as they introduce all of these different characters one by one. And it's just unnecessary. It, it could have been just easily been told in the in a linear sense. Yeah. Without those weird sort of like freeze cut moments, which affect the pace. Something fierce. You never get at least in this introduction, you never are able to sit with a character for long enough to grow to care. At least up until, you know, everyone's there and they're all talking and all of that stuff. Well, sure. But like we're talking about maybe the opening 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Like we're introducing 10 characters or 11 characters very quickly to criticize it for not managing to make us care about any of them. I would argue that John Cusack wins our favor by 
stopping and helping. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. But I think not care is too strong a term to use. More like I barely, I don't, I don't know these people. No. You you spend so little time with them, sort of generally before they all get to the motel that you don't really know them. Well, yeah, but like, is is that really like a criticism though? Like, we, again, we're talking about maybe the fifteen minute first fifteen minutes of the movie as you're introducing eleven separate characters, plus you're also setting up this sort of strange, seemingly disconnected thread of the lawyers and the judge waiting for the prisoner to arrive at, at the hearing. So if you're introducing all of these characters, I mean, the, the sort of point of it all is to sort of just set them up one by one. And I think the movie does do a good job of that. We we have a pretty good idea of John C. McGinley, what kind of a relationship could John C. McGinley and his wife and his stepson have at that point. We get a pretty good idea of who John Cusack and the woman that he's transporting is. We get a pretty good idea about Amanda Peet because we get that flashback of her with one of her clients. For me, with the weird non-linear storytelling at the beginning, setting everything up to get them all to the motel, I think telling that in a linear way would have been more effective because yeah. it's starting too weird. I agree. I, I would say, I think in the movies, just to, to be the devil's advocate in the movie's defense, I think that it is th that kind of structure is already setting up some of the stranger swings that it's going to take. I think that erratic style and those seemingly disconnected ideas like the hearing with with the lawyer in it and I mean we get that opening sequence of Alfred Molina listening to the recorded tape recordings while the opening credits play. I do think it is kind of building a strange tone that is kind of keeping the audience on its toes and keeping us from figuring out exactly what's up. There's an ambiguity to some of what the setup is here that I think is if if you if you ask the writer and Mangold to justify their choices there, they would probably say, I think, that it was to set up a sort of an erratic feeling of, of kind of unreality that has the audience on the back foot. So when it does go crazy, you know, there is a sort of a stylistic precedent for it. While I get that, for me, though, it would be more effective if I was settled into a reality first. If we start with the reality... Then as the movie is going on, we get these more unreal elements be sprinkled in over time. Yeah. And that's all like creeping surreality while the murders are happening, while the closed room murder mystery thing is happening. Because it's very similar to an Agatha Christie thing. Isolated location. Oh yeah. It's very, very much and that like they literally bring up and then there were none in it. Exactly. Like and if we got those creepy surreal elements sprinkled in during that, then I think that would have been more effective because you don't know the twist right from the get-go, but you're expecting one. Can we talk about the conga line of tragic bullshit that occurs to get all these people in the motel <laughs> at the same time? This dumb series of idiot decisions... <laughs> Well, it's sort of less like a series of extreme coincidences that, again, yeah. strain credulity to begin with. But then once you start figuring out the other things, the fact that their names are all related to states yeah. in some way, the fact that their birthday is all the same date, year notwithstanding, obviously. I again, I think that while that stuff can seem a little bit convenient at the beginning, it's 
point in the overarching narrative is pretty clear by the time the credits roll. Yeah, and I do understand that. I just love the comedy of all of these things happening on this stretch of road to the point where it's like some kind of Loki figure is just screwing with people. Well, it's not It's not that many things. I mean, it's it's... Really, it's only the running over of Alice. Everyone else is just stuck there because it, the road got flooded. What I like is the location, for the most part. Yeah. The location is oh, crazy yeah. effective. There's something so unsettling about an isolated motel in the middle of nowhere. Mm. But not only that, this is in the deserts of Nevada. Mm. This is a desert. I love the part where Jake just wanders into the desert to try to get away then he just comes across the motel again. Hmm. Deserts are imagination spaces to begin with. They are yeah. these places where anything can be realized, in a sense, because of how vast and empty they are. And so the fact that this is a desert, but the rain is torrential. Like, the storm is... It's obscuring our vision. In the darkness, basically all we can see is what, like a hundred foot radius hmm. around this motel and the only sources of light are in the motel and the lightning. Yeah. Location is fantastic and Mangold shoots it very, very well. They get a lot of use out of the different parts of, you know, the motel, of the restaurant area, the parts with, you know, the little office, that room that they all end up in. It is very well shot and with all of the water like lawson said would have been terrible to be on the set but again just on a technical standpoint it is handled so well and here's the thing a motel itself is a transitionary space right yeah yeah apart from the people who run it nobody's meant to be staying for any Mm. substantial amount of time so which ties into the Backstory. Yeah, so a motel is kind of like the perfect location for a closed room murder mystery. Because yeah. while we find out that the people aren't here by coincidence, it could all be coincidence. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. The location is just very evocative and effective. Especially since while the rooms look nice and cozy outside feels very hostile. Not only because of the storm, but some of the weird geometry of the place Mm. yeah i was gonna bring that up i I do think that the geography of the motel's layout is kind of unclear at points yeah i think that's deliberate yeah i'm not sure it's meant to imply that it's shifting or anything no no it's just that it's an odd place yeah i'm sure motels that look like it exist because we're not gonna get into the overarching story just yet but i think that adds to it that Mm. the desert itself is ever shifting i don't think the layout of the hotel really changes but it works by a different set of rules Mm. than a conventional location a comparison i make and i don't make this comparison lightly is a location like the overlook in the shining like the overlook doesn't always make sense in that movie it's like it's not a conscious shifting. The fact it doesn't make sense at some points is meant to subconsciously affect you. The only time in this movie where you really sit still with a character as they are talking for a prolonged period of time is when Ed 
is describing his backstory and why he stopped being a cop. Other than that, we are not really staying stationary for too long. We're going around the motel, so we never really are able to center ourselves in one specific location within the motel. Mm. Exactly. There's the the one scene where the actress that John Cusack was carding around the place, she gets her mobile phone charged, and she gets, like, the shower curtain to protect herself from the rain, and she's looking for service. And we follow her walking, like, we're in front of her, walking out of her room, and we sort of lose track because our sight is obscured. Yeah. And that's really effective. By the use of the camera, Mangold makes the location not make that much sense. And because it's a motel, a lot of the rooms look very similar. Hmm. So you, again, you start to lose track of where you are, and I think that is definitely on purpose. The choice of a motel doesn't seem to be a mistake. In fact, it seems to be one of the things that's stuck with the different, you know, versions of this movie that they were writing. The location of a motel is even significant to the reveal. Mm. being a very significant location, informing that story. Yeah. But anyway, what do we think of Ray Liotta? I think that the whole cast is actually pretty decent here. I mean, you've got a lot of talented people. I mean, you've got Cusack, Liotta, John Hawks, Amanda Peet. John C. McGinley is very much against type as this sort of nervous... Mm. Stepdad. Stepdad. He's just got stepdad energy. Yeah. From the moment you first see him. It's, it's, and I think that the the movie does do a good job of differentiating them all. Oh yeah, they're all different. Well, they're all different archetypes in a sense. I mean, not to get too close into the twist thing, but they represent different parts of a person. Mm. I mean, we, we get pretty quickly drawn ideas of these people's personalities and the way that they interact with each other. I think they're set up in a good way of a lot of them being suspicious in their own right and a lot of them being at odds as well. Well, that's the closed room murder mystery of it all. Each of those characters in that sort of setting are archetypal. They're Mm. all meant to represent this different type of person. I quite like Cusack here. I think that he's he's pretty good as this lead role. I think Leota is doing some interesting stuff as well. The moment I saw Leota, I'm like, hmm, he's a bit sus. Cusack over the last decade has sort of drifted into direct-to-DVD stuff. Mm. I think that's sad. Yeah. That's a shame. He has such talent, specifically with psychological thrillers and stuff. I mean, 1408 is his high watermark in terms of that. He manages to really fit in with these kind of mind-bendy, twisty, you know, films. I think Leota is really interesting in this. The B-movie veteran, as I like to call him. He is trying to just control everything, and I feel like that's what he kind of represents. Yeah, that sort of person, when in a crisis, attempts to hold everything a certain way, whereas Cusack is the kind of person who wants to actually solve a problem Mm. instead of controlling a problem. The surreality does also come into the deaths here. Can I ask, at what point did you guys catch that Ray Liotta was going to be one of the prisoners? The moment I saw him. Yeah, me too. I mean, for people who've seen as many genre movies as us, I think it's kind of an obvious thing but i also think that they uh they call their shot way too fast by showing him with taking his jacket off and having the uh the hole the bloody hole at the back of his shirt yeah that was too soon i kind of knew 
the twists coming in, sort of. I can remember watching a video essay about this movie and then forgetting the name of it and thinking, oh, that motel movie kind of looked interesting. And then when I watched the trailer, because I wanted to see if that was the one, you know, that I was renting on YouTube, I was like, I think I have seen this, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, Ray Liotta doesn't carry himself like a cop in this. He carries himself as sort of this batshit insane control freak. I don't know if I'd go that far. I think he's he's a lot more reserved than that. He does a good enough job to, to sell himself as a cop to the other characters. Hmm. Except for Cusack. One of the parts where I was like, oh, this is definitely what they're doing, is when Ray Liotta reaches in to touch the decapitated head mm. and Cusack's like no 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 use this like napkin or something that made me go mm, if he really was a cop then he would have known I'm not sure we're meant to think that Cusack has like figured it out or anything I think he just thinks no. Leota's incompetent <laughs> yeah mm. but it's a it's still a clue that seems like a good bridge to talking about some of the slasher stuff the sort of one-by-one one aspect that it, it goes into, which I is like... like the room keys are left yeah. near the bodies. That's a really cool touch. It's a nice little grisly touch. It's like they're checking out yeah. and leaving the key. I mean, the head in the in the washing machine, the drying machine, whatever. I mean, that's the movie's most slasherish touch, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's most violent and disturbing image. That's a kind of surreal as well. Yeah, but but you could totally imagine that in a Friday the Thirteenth movie or something yeah, like that. Definitely. Oh, definitely. What comes a little more odd is the baseball bat shoved down someone's throat. Yeah. I mean, you to hear that. Well, the, the bucketing down rain kind of would muffle it a bit. That's a hell of a process. It is a hell of a process because. I'm just trying to figure out the mechanics of that, because you'd have to... Don't bother thinking about the mechanics of it. How does he manage to rig up a car to blow up? <laughs> like, where do you get the bomb? You can't start thinking about it in, in that sense, especially once the, the twist is unveiled. It's There's a level of sort of strangeness to it all that implies almost... I don't know, does it, does it imply a sort of superhuman nature? To the villain? Uh, kind of. And he, at the very least, seems aware of the situation that he's in and, yeah. and how to navigate it a little bit more than the other characters. I think that would make sense. Let's just bite the bullet. There's no point in discussing what this killer can do without getting into what the actual twist is. But, yeah, well, before we go into the twist, I do just want to talk about the general tone of this, like, second third of the movie. The sort of slasher thing, the investigating. We think that Jake Busey's done it, but... Then we think Larry did then it. Then we think Larry did it. There's a dead body in the freezer, Larry! Also, Larry being... Oh, the body was here. You had service for how long and you didn't phone the cops? He needed the money. Larry's got a hustle. It's one of the weird surreal touches of the movie. Larry's explanation for leaving the body in the freezer is... He was waiting for the family to contact him, but then he, in a kind of gothic horror sense, started living his life. Yeah. Like, he started becoming him, and he said that one of the weird things is that his name was Larry, too. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those bizarre touches that I really dig here. 
I mean, I, I don't think it's meant to be a convincing excuse that he was waiting for the, the family to contact him. I think within the narrative, even Larry knows it's a bad excuse. He's just a desperate guy who was broke and needed money and sort of... I appreciate the hustle. He did the job right. <laughs> By all intents, he was good at it. So it's like nothing had happened. He's way too judgy about sex work. He's way too judgy about sex work to be someone who's running a motel. And the weird thing is, how did he clock her that quick, being a sex worker? That's like a weird assumption to make. Yeah. Well, I feel like it was probably the fact that she was checking in alone, maybe? I don't know. There's there's some shortcuts there, yeah. I mean, he's not the only one that comes to that conclusion. Mm. Like, she never... I mean, we know she's a sex worker because we see the flashback of her with a client, but she never says it to any of the other no. characters, and yet it, it becomes... A, a truth that they all understand kind of inexplicably quickly. In a sense, with the overarching story, that does kind of click into place. That yeah. There's things that characters know about each other that don't make sense, right? Yeah. Can I just say what a stretch it is for all of their names? Like, I especially don't like... Louisiana. yeah. Like, <laughs> Jesus. That is ridiculous. Ridiculous. They never say his surname until Cusack's checking the driver's licenses, do they? If your last name was Easyana, right? You'd have to be a really annoying person to have named your kid Lou. Yeah. You'd have to be just that kind of person, where you're always the centre of attention, you've turned your kid into a joke. I, I do think that the kind of, like, mounting weirdness of it is kind of well handled as well. Like, you already mentioned, Sean, the scene where... Uh, Busey gets away from the hotel, mm. only to see the hotel right in front of him again. To break into the hotel. <laughs> I actually knew the twist uh, coming into this. I had been aware of it before. It's like it had turned up on some list I'd read, like best twists in horror movies or something, yeah. or craziest twists in movies. And you obviously had seen this video essay. Did you know anything about this twist, Harley? I figured it out. Okay. I figured it out in the opening sequence. I don't think yeah. I'd seen that video you're talking about, John. I know the channel, but I hadn't seen the video. The moment I started seeing ID1, ID2, ID3 in the opening credits with Alfred Molina's narration going over it, I'm like, oh, this is one of these films. Yeah. So let's just... So so you weren't particularly thrown then by Busey seeing a hotel off in front of him when he just no. left it behind. Yeah. I wasn't particularly thrown by it because the location is very gothic horror, particularly American gothic. So I'm not particularly fussed about the idea of desert as imagination space, so to speak, as a, as a location that doesn't make sense. It is the moment where if you don't know the twisting, you haven't figured it out yet, then it is the first like true confirmation to that hypothetical audience member that this is not just a straightforward serial killer movie that there's something yeah. else that's going on here and i think it, it that is then played into when we finally see pruitt taylor vince as the murderer brought into the meeting that the judge and the lawyers are having because i think up until that point we assume and we're meant to assume that the murderer being transported to this hearing is jack Busey. yeah mm. so this uh let's just talk about the reveal the reveal that we find out that this whole thing these people trapped at this hotel, all of the different characters all born on the same day, all named after different states, they are all personalities inside the head of a serial killer with dissociative identity disorder. Uh, this guy played by Pruitt Taylor Vince, 
who is in, I don't know what you call it, the wraparound story, yeah. being assessed for his mental culpability in the crimes that he has committed. And Alfred Molina is his psychologist who is undergoing this strange and not very discussed therapy where he is basically pitting all of the personalities against each other in like a weird Hunger Games battle royale situation. Couldn't possibly end poorly when one of them is a serial yes, killer. where only the... The one that lives at the end, the last one standing, will assume full control over the body of this guy. And, and yeah, that's actually quite psychologically damaging. Because the idea, as posited by the film, is that these identities appear when the psyche sort of fractures. And these are all elements of a person's personality given conscious form. And that they are all reactions to trauma and are sort of stop gaps between the original personality's, you know, psyche and this other damaging force. And so is he suggesting the best possible way to handle this, as opposed to simply proving the fact he's not, you know, fully culpable, is the destruction of significant elements of his psyche. Well, I I think what he's doing with the whole weird battle royale thing is separate from him trying to convince the judge that Mm. he's not culpable for what he did. Because the thing with the judge has been triggered by the discovery of a misfiled journal with all of Mm. the different personalities handwriting in it. And actually, apparently, if you go back in and you look at Timmy's handwriting, it's it's pretty, like, serial killer-ish. I, I suppose, like, frankly, we haven't actually talked about the second twist, because there is two. There's the first. It's, it's taken all in this guy's mind. And then the, the second one, that the, the murderer personality, is actually neither Leota or Jake Busey, but is instead this pretty much mute kid who has yeah. been just in the background, John C. McGinley and uh, his wife's kid that has been just not really much of a player throughout the whole thing other than I suppose to sort of give it an additional hint of danger that there is a child that is at risk who then actually again and a very and then there were none twist initially appears to have been killed himself only to turn up at the end to reveal himself to be the villain. I mean if you are a serial killer in one of these one location things Faking your death is probably the best option. Yeah. Because you want to sort of make people think, oh, it couldn't have been them, people are still dying, and that person's dead. And for as fun a what-the-hell moment as that car blowing up is, that is the one that, in retrospect, makes the least sense if you think about the mechanics of how it would have to work. Because this kid would somehow have to obtain explosives, rig up the car to explode and then get away from this woman who is his guardian, like far enough away from the exploding car that he was not himself injured or killed. But at the same time, she didn't get out of the car to go and get him once he made a move. Like, But the thing is, he seems to have such control over this mindscape. Exactly. He seems to be... I suppose because of his nature, like, and because of what's happened to this guy, this Pruitt Taylor Vince character in the real world, that this killer seems to be the one with the most control or has the most ability to exert force on the mindscape, the personality. I think maybe Cusack 
following up after that. Cusack is sort of, I don't know, the protector personality. You get the sense that maybe Amanda Peet is supposed to be the one that's closest to the real guy. Mm. I mean, how do you even define that at that point? The real guy? Like... The, the OG personality? I don't yeah. know. Let's just go through the cast and figure out what elements of his personality each character is. Right. There's the Jake Busey character, which is the part that's being punished. He's the part that is acknowledged as a criminal. Well, he, he and Ray Liotta both have a kind of twinship, not only with each other, but with Timmy, in that they are explicitly mentioned in the film as being killers as well. Yeah. So they... I don't know what, what that, that's meant to represent in terms of his... I mean, it's, it's sort of easier to identify people like John C. McGinley, clearly like the nervous, you know, nerves, neuroticism, stuff like that. He gets demolished by the truck. Oh, yeah, that is like... Damn! That is a great moment, because it is out of nowhere, and the way that they do it in the one shot is very effective. He gets cleaned up. And that's a really good performance by John C. McGinley as well. Yeah. Mm. Like, very against type for a guy that was at that time playing Dr. Cox on Scrubs, was known for playing, like, the SWAT team leader in different movies. and Yeah. He's pitch perfect with that stepfather energy. Yeah. Then there's obviously his wife, who is the sort of the nurturing mother figure who, not coincidentally, is immediately taken out of play. Before they even get to the motel. Larry? What does Larry represent? Paranoia. Well, yeah, but like weakness as well. Weakness. Weakness. Disgust. Aimlessness. He seems to be trying to hold everything together, kind of. In terms of like, he's the one who's trying to do all of the... I mean, think about like the juxtaposition between him and the Cusack character when Cusack is explaining what has... Like, he's trying to tell everyone what's gone down, and instead Larry's just like, you know, he got a head cut off and there's a serial killer on the loose. Like, he's freaking out. If I was Ed, I'd turn around and say, thanks, Larry. Thank you, Dr. Watson. Jesus Christ, shut up. You're going to make everyone panic. They have to stay in one room. How difficult is it? That's a good idea, John. I'm sure that would have done lots to calm the situation if John Cusack had turned around and said that. John Cusack... His role is that of the protector of the... We can all be thankful that it was John Cusack and not Jean Cusack. Haha. <laughs> but... Funny. <laughs> like, Lawson, we don't get to say this very often for you, but Zinger? Look, I'm not proud of it. No one's ever proud of a pun. Like, even the people that make them don't like them. Cusack's character was a cop, but he's also a driver. Yeah. He's He seems to have been the one who is in control the most. He's a practical problem solver character. Yeah, he's the he's literally the driver. So, so what are we then to make of that? It's an interesting discussion then to frame that conversation that he has with Amanda Pete, where he talks about his history, the time that he came to this jumper on the roof, and she asked what what possible reason there could be for her to hang on, and he hesitated. I think that Cusack might be as close to the prime personality as we get. Yeah, which then makes it a little unusual that he he sort of doesn't assume that role. I don't think he is the prime personality. I think he is one of the first. He hands it over to Amanda Pete because he's kind of like that woman on the bridge. You know, he mm. just can't really think of a reason to do this, and he's the one. He's the only one. Mm that knows the secret of what's happening there. It, it all gets very confused because if you're trying to plot out why things are happening, like the the twist 
for as interesting an idea as it is, I mean, it's batshit, but it is interesting. It kind of makes things kind of messy to track from that point on. Mm. And you actually see in the scene where Cusack and Leota are firing at each other and end up killing each other, there is a muted line of dialogue between them. That they, they speak, they clearly speak, but is not present in the sound mix. And that in the script was apparently Leota saying, I didn't do this. And Cusack saying, I know. Mm. But that then makes entirely no sense as to why he just like, all right, see you later, Amanda Pete. You have fun dealing with a murderous child. <laughs> like, it's, that's weird as well. But also I think it's significant that Cusack is the one personality that actually ma- manages to manifest in in the real mm. world, quote unquote. Because he's the protector. Yes. And is the only one who is actually able to converse with Alfred Molina, with the judge, who is the dad from Donnie Darko. That's where I recognised him from. I spent the whole movie going, where oh, where yeah. do I know that guy from? <laughs> and I looked he it up is. at the end and he's the dad from Donnie Darko. You're not crazy. I'm crazy. Yeah. <laughs> But let's talk about that scene, because I think the scene where Cusack wakes up, for lack of a better word, in the real world, in Pruitt Taylor Vince's body, and we get the kind of blend of their performances that Mangold gives of, of, of we see not only Cusack sitting in the chair, but Pruitt Taylor Vince as well. Jesus Christ, what the fuck did you do? Try and calm To my face. Try and keep calm. Where the fuck is my face? Edward, that is your face. Why am I tied up? calm. Edward, please. Jesus Christ. Where is my face? Edward, stay calm. No, I'm not going to stay calm. Why am I tied up like this? Who are all these people? What happened at the motel? Where is everybody? They don't exist, Edward. You were all created by Malcolm as a child. You're a liar! I think that's a really strong performance from Pruitt Taylor Vince. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, is probably the most emotionally effective scene is this guy who's just kind of shattered by the enormity of what this means for him as an individual, as a personality. He's getting so much thrown at him in that scene. I mean, not only is it like, well, your whole life doesn't exist. It's all been sort of imagining inside the head of a, of a guy with a mental issue. But also, in the real world, the body you inhabit is a, is in prison for killing all these people. And we've got this battle royale thing going on, so... uh Either you're the last one standing or you'll be wiped from existence. Yeah, and it's 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 sort of this, well, good luck. Why would you go to Dr. Arthur Molina? Like, he seems like not a particularly ethical doctor, like just what he's trying to do. So his his solution is like that guy from Godzilla. Let them fight. <laughs> It really is. I mean, it's an absurd idea. I've never seen a more unhelpful coping mechanism to be put in. It's it's inherently destructive and will not end well, because we've already established that one of these personalities is, in fact, a serial killer. Does Alfred Molina know that Timmy is the serial killer? No, but one of them is. Like, one of these personalities is a serial killer... So, basically, you're just giving the serial killer a bunch of victims. But if he knows that Timmy is the killer, then why doesn't he just tell the John Cusack personality? Watch out for that kid. Look, here's the thing. I don't think that the best structure for psychotherapy is Fortnite. (laughs) (laughs) 
basically the kid is the winner in a chicken dinner. Look, this all kind of plays into something we talked about a little bit in the split episode as well, which is the appropriateness of the way that Hollywood depicts certain mental illnesses. Mm. And the appropriateness... I don't know. In some ways, I kind of have more of a problem with what Identity is doing than I ever did with what Split is doing, because Split... Mm. Yes, Split is playing into the stereotype of the mentally ill, especially those with dissociative identity disorder, as being violent and dangerous. But that was a few personalities of many who were trying to stop him. And then that played into this weird, like, superhero thing that gave it all this hint of unreality. Whereas this, they not only play into that stereotype, but they also turn it into, like, a weird PUBG... Like scenario that makes me kind of uneasy. Like it's almost like therapy for entertainment. Like therapy as Hunger Games esque thrills. You can almost imagine Alfred Molina sitting there watching all of this happen on Pruitt's face, just with a bucket of popcorn, being like, "Fascinating." It's therapy, Allah Running Man. Are we to understand? Because there is the stuff at the end where we see Pruitt Taylor Vince delivering Amanda Peet's lines. Are we to understand that he's been doing this the whole time through? Uh, like, is there, like, a thing where, like, the judge and the lawyers are all sitting there watching Pruitt Taylor Vince be like, this isn't what it looks like. There's a dead body in your freezer, Larry. Has that been going on for the last two hours? If I were the judge at that point, I'd be like, yeah, yep, that makes sense. He needs to go to a hospital. I don't need to sit here for two hours watching him re- enact an entire play. I don't need the audiobook version of Then There Were None. <laughs> the the, the dramatized, <laughs> the audible exclusive dramatized <laughs> radio play with... Pruitt Taylor Vince doing all the voices. <laughs> I, I can just, I can just imagine just seeing this guy go. What have you done? What have you done? But that's kind of like the disturbing thing at the end too. Is that with what the movie depicts, the correct choice, the humane choice, not holding this man culpable for crimes he did not have the presence of mind to be responsible for. To send him to a hospital to get help that he clearly needs, rather than putting him to death for really tragic circumstances that are beyond his control. Mm. That is presented as being inherently the incorrect decision, because he goes evil at the end and kills some more people and gets away. Mm. And that troubles me a lot. Mm. I think, you know, I was saying some good things about the first two acts of this movie, and I am still entertained by the third act, if, if for nothing else, than the sheer bravado of what it's trying to pull off. But I do think it becomes extremely messy as soon as they make that pivot. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And some of its implications are unfortunate, but not in what feels like an intentional way. It, it more just feels like like people haven't thought through what it is that they're saying with this story. Yeah, they've they've come up with the plot twists and they haven't thought through what those mean in a more metatextual way and what thematically those reveals are going to say to the wider public. Yeah. I will say that just on a pure, like, visceral, it's not really over thing, the reveal of Timmy as the villain, is is kind of a good one. Like, I'm always interested Mm. in, like, a creepy child. Oh, yeah. And he does it well. They're good villains because there is something just... You never suspect the kid. 
You know, you never do. And there is just something incredibly chilling about the idea of a child possessing the kind of maliciousness and violence that will create a grown serial killer. Like, seeing that in a, in a 10-year-old is is inherently unnerving. Yeah, because if you look at someone like Ted Bundy, you're looking at his pathology and you think, he's existed... Well, I'm not even talking about, like, real serial killers. I'm talking about the, like, bizarro fictional serial killers. Mm. Like, this kid... You know, Damien from The Omen, you know, stuff like that. Well, Damien from The Omen is literally the Antichrist, so I think you have to put an asterisk next to his name. The kids who are just evil, for no reason. It's so creepy because if you look at a serial killer like Freddy or whatever, you think, he's lived for so long that he's developed a worldview, but a kid hasn't... Their brain hasn't developed enough to a point where you feel like someone could be capable of such an action. Well, the thing about a killer kid is that it essentially answers the question nature versus nurture. Exactly. There can be no motive if it is a child. Hmm. It's clearly nature in that situation. And that is, I think, what frightens us. Yeah. Hmm. But, like, the way that he sort of pops up, his only line in the movie is, Whores don't get a second chance. You know, that's... I don't know how you pitch that to the actor's parents. Hey, you know, he's going to be witness to all of these horrible murders, and then at the end he gets to say this one line, and guess what it is, guys? <laughs> like, It's a killer. Yeah. I do think that the kid does sell it at the end. Oh, yeah. oh, the kid does sell it. You can tell that someone has sat him down and respectfully and gently explained the context. Mangold has clearly went through the psychology of the character with He it. would have been nine... Look, he was born in 93. He would have been nine or ten when they filmed this. So, yeah. like, mm. you you have the capacity at nine or ten to understand the concept of acting and the concept yeah. of grown-up movies and the concept of scary movies. You know, you can pull that off fine. Easily someone explained to him, look, he says this because he's, his mother left him at motels. And this traumatised him, because he was neglected and abused. It's like all those kids in Insidious, where when that poor kid had to act with the, the demon, the Darth Maul demon, at the end of the first, they just, they had him in makeup while the actor was having the makeup applied to him so he could see yeah. his strength. There's, there's ways to, like, get kids adjusted. To, to ease a kid into one of these freaky situations, like, that's the thing with Insidious and the makeup room. That's a great way of doing it, because mm. you're straight up just saying, this is a guy playing dress-up, and you're literally just showing the process of the person getting made up. You can explain these things to kids in such a way that they can understand what is necessary of them in terms of performance. The thing is introducing them to the process, right? Yeah. In Haunting of Bly Manor, the construction of one of the characters was done between an adult actor and a child actor. And they work together on that. It's keeping kids in the loop of what's mm. going on with the film. That's what allows for a performance from a child actor to be really good in any genre. Yeah. They need to be involved. You treat them like other actors, yeah. other professionals in the workplace. Well, we've gotten a surprisingly robust discussion out of this movie. More than I thought. Do you two have anything else to add, or are we at the, at the end of our episode here, do you think? The Alan Silvestri score was kind of interesting for me, because it really sounded like the music from White of the Eye, and I just find that style of horror score fascinating. The weird percussion, the 
sort of repetition ad nauseum of specific rhythms and stuff i found found that very interesting and also what was his name pruitt taylor vince pruitt taylor vince excellent work Hmm. just flat out excellent work i've seen him in a few other things and he's great well there is nothing uh in the imdb parents guide of note this week so why don't we each go around and say what our favorite scene or sequence is and who our mvp is for this movie i will start us off As always, I will say that my MVP is James Mangold. I think that he stages this well. He keeps a good, tight, Hitchcockian sort of control on things. It's not his best work. His best work was still ahead of him at that point, but it's very well-made, low-budget, relatively low-budget thriller. And he keeps it all humming along really well. And even when it takes its swing into absurdity at the end, the way that he shoots stuff like the scene where Cusack's character surfaces the hearing room. He shoots that stuff really well, and he keeps he keeps a good handle on that. And that plays into my favourite scene or sequence, which is that scene when John Cusack surfaces up into the courtroom, the hearing room, because really it's the performance. I've just figured out something. The reason why it's raining inside his head is because it's raining yeah. outside in those scenes. And when it's not raining outside in those scenes, when it's clear day, that's the only time at the motel that it isn't raining. Really, it's the performances that make that scene for me. It's it's like the one moment in the film of genuine, like, real emotion for characters. You feel real sympathy for the kind of horrific situation that not only Pruitt Taylor Vince is in, but, 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 but what John Cusack is in. I mean, mm. they're in this, like, bizarre nightmare scenario under the care of, like, a mad scientist (laughs) who has somehow, somehow gotten approval from the ethics committee at his hospital to do this to a patient. But the way that it's performed by both actors, the way that they sort of react to finding out all this information, and, and the way also there's a lot to be said about really good reaction acting, you know, when you're not part of the scene in terms of action and dialogue but you're there in the background and i think you see that with mr darko donnie darko's yeah. dad and and with some of the lawyers as well is that the way that they react to what they're seeing is for the first mm. time with something approaching compassion yeah like there is kind of like an oh jesus mm. like kind of reaction there that almost that they're thinking we need to get alfred molina away from this <laughs> yeah. person yeah because this is messed up. It was never the bad call to take him off death row. It was just the bad call to keep him in the care of Alfred Molina. Like, that was a problem. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's that's what the hearing should have been about. <laughs> yeah. It should have been like an ethics committee meeting. <laughs> yeah. Alfred Molina's character is certainly the subject of a Netflix documentary limited oh, series. absolutely. With all of his former patients. Yeah. The events of the film, it's like the, the last episode, like the downfall. He took it too far and it... And took his life and the life of other people as well. Yeah. And that's what's caused this, yeah. Anyways, what about you guys? What do you think? I would say that my MVP would have to be Mangold. In the hands of a less capable director, this would have been a complete mess. Like, an utter train wreck. But he steers the ship using two completely different metaphors. He, he keeps it on track. He makes sure that it looks great. The location is very effective. The thriller filmmaking is very well done. It's really the story that starts to lose control. Mangold holds it together as best he can. He brings out some really interesting performances from Cusack. Like that one key scene, that monologue, 
about Cusack's character, which would be my favorite scene or sequence, his monologue, explaining how he lost hope, essentially. It's just a very well done monologue, very well written monologue, I have to give the writer credit for that. But I do also like the scene of John C. McGinley getting wiped out and collected <laughs> by that truck. He got absolutely nailed. For me, I'll give my MVP to Pruitt Tale Events. And that goes hand in hand with my favorite scene, which is the reveal of the true nature of basically everything that we're seeing. Pruitt Tale Events does such an exceptional job at playing the character with confusion and pathos and empathy he he does such a good job and i mean i know that it's a medical condition that he has but the fact that his eyes keep moving and stuff just just adds to the fact that you you really feel sorry for uh, malcolm and you know that the vast majority of his personalities and he himself had nothing to do with the crimes that took place it is a sad sad situation brilliantly acted and yes get alfred molina away from this guy (laughs) dr alfred molina is never a good thing in a movie like has he ever played a doctor that hasn't gone crazy that hasn't done really unethical things malcolm rivers mind in the palm of my hand (laughs) he has a talent for villains He does have a talent for villains. Ah, Alfred Molina is always a win. He's just great. He's so fun to watch because he does so much with his face. All right. So then why don't we do our vote on whether we are a pro-identity podcast? I will start us off and I will say that I like this movie, but considering the point of these votes, I mean, we're supposed to be talking about, you know, our imaginary The Long Watch Criterion Blu-ray line here, like, our endorsed These are, these are films. meant to be home runs. Yes, and I cannot say that identity fits that category. It's got too messy a final act. Its themes are too confused and at times appear to have no idea what they're saying. And yeah, for all of the fun I get out of the closed circle mystery pseudo slasher elements in the first two thirds, I, I can't go ahead and, and sign my name to this as being a great example of cinema. No, I cannot. So... No, it's a vote no from me. For me, I would have to say the movie's good, not great. And that's what I can say for it. See, that's interesting because I, I've gotten the impression from our recording that you are more down on it than good, but not great. I like it. Don't get me wrong. I do like it. But when the movie ended, when we were watching it yesterday, I felt very little at its conclusion. And I want to be excited to talk about the film on the podcast if I'm going to recommend it for, you know, sort of our shortlist. And I didn't, so I can't. Fair enough. Yeah, it's going to be a no for me, too. Yeah, it's not list material, I think. It's it's good. It has a lot of really interesting ideas. We've talked about a lot of the positives in this movie. A lot of the performances are great. The setting is fantastic. The twists do a really good job at really throwing you through a loop. But again, th- that first 10 to 15 minutes really just overdid it for me. Yeah, it just kind of threw me through a loop a little too much. Well, since we've all voted no, that triggers our second vote as to whether we are an anti-identity podcast. And I can already tell you that the answer to that is no, because I'm not voting that we will become an anti-identity <laughs> podcast. I, I think that there is enough in this movie to like and to 
Yeah. Perhaps not recommend, but but certainly it is a fun experience to watch, and so I vote no. It's a mind-bendy psychological thriller. It is sort of twisty and has a really cool energy to it. So yeah, it's not. We're not. I'm not anti the movie. Same here. I'm not going to tell you not to watch it. You'd have to be doing something truly heinous for me to, mm. you know, advise steering very clear. Of it, but there's like better examples of this sort of thing it's in other films. It's an interesting, forgotten, you know, psychological thriller starring some really great performances, and maybe it should be talked about a little bit more. I don't know. So yes, ultimately we are not a pro identity podcast. Aww. So now we're going to do the segment that Lawson talked about at the start. <laughs> really? Okay. Who would you get Lithgow to play in this? I suggest that we structure this new segment we are making up on the fly as just each of us going one by one to pick our choices rather than trying to come up with some common pick. Yeah. For me, I would... See, I, I would normally come with an answer already, but because this has been kind of come up with so quickly, I'm, I'm a little shaken. I kind of... Yeah, I'd have to go with, like, the Jake Busey character. <laughs> no, no, the Leota character, Leota. Leota, because um, he'd get more to do. He can walk that line of being like you could believe him as being an actual cop, but you it would also make a lot of sense when he turned yeah. out to be a murderer. Yeah, that would be the one that I would I would cast recast Ray Leota with John Lithgow. John, I have him as the kid, and you change absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's not a serious. It's John John C. McGinley just has this. 65-year-old stepson who Absolutely. <laughs> sits in the background. You recast it not as the son, but as, like, the... No, no, no. The grandfather. No, you're doing, you're doing too much to try to change it. No, no, no. Script stays the same. Twist stays the same. It's just Lithgow. Is this a serious... An- like, is this, the, is this how we want to start off this segment, though? Are we... Is this going to be a joke-answer segment, or are we going to actually try and come up with something to cast John Lithgow as. Like, if we get to, like, you know, when we if we ever cover Wonder Woman, are we just going to all, like, go, ha-ha, wouldn't it be funny no, if no, John Lithgow played Aries. Wonder Woman? <laughs> Which, yes. No, I haven't but... played Dr. Poison. John. But anyway, sure, if if you want my serious one, probably McGinley's character. He would totally crush that energy. You know that he can do it. Would it be sad to see him get absolutely shit-mixed by a truck? Mm. Probably. But he'd do it well. Oh, yeah, it'd be like instant emotion in that scene because we'd be seeing oh, yeah. Lithgow go, yeah. Tears streaming down Have you down guys the seen face. that Key and Peele skit where um, it's a guy that's like, it's Keegan-Michael Key is babysitting yes. this kid. A uh, baby who Forrest is Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker. Baby, baby Forrest Whitaker, Whitaker, yes. What if it was John Lithgow as the kid, but like using that same kind of mocap yes. technology to put his yeah, face absolutely. on a chart? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Google, the Google. idea we've come up with, but <laughs> my vote would be the role of Larry. Mm. He gets given a lot to do. Yeah, I see it. Like, he I gets given it. a lot to do. We get Lithgo <laughs> doing some crazy stuff. I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> Who listens to this? Who listens? Who listens to this podcast, really? Like, we're talking about recasting. Who we'd recast... In the, in, a, in the movie with character actor John Lithgow. I like this. I, <laughs> I do. Like this. I love it. I love it. I'm this. a big fan of it. I'm just saying, is this the kind of thing that 
like in all of the world, only the three of us find funny, or have has everyone checked out by now? <laughs> I think we've we've mythologized this guy. Yeah, and I continue to wonder. I continue to wonder if John Lithgow became aware of this podcast, would he be flattered, or would he be like, oh no? <laughs> like, <laughs> Calling his lawyer. Yeah. Season desist letters. Three of them. Well, two of them are twins. So just send one letter to them. All right. All right. Let's let's wrap this baby up. What have we got next week, Wilson? Next week, it actually kind of snuck up on us because I thought that we were going to have more time before we did another franchise episode mm-hmm. than we ended up having, but we don't. We are moving next week onto another franchise episode where we do three movies in one week. This time we will be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, here meaning the first three, The Curse of the Black Pearl, Dead Man's Chest, and At World's End. If you would like to follow along at home, they are, all three of them, available for streaming on Disney Plus in Australia, and they're also available for purchase and rental on the Amazon, Fetch, Apple, and YouTube stores as well as for rental only on the QuickFlix store. But if you would like to watch it in 4K, it is only available in 4K on Disney Plus and on Apple. And I can confidently say that this will be the last franchise episode in a long, long time. Like, we're talking about second half of next year before the next... You promise? I promise. I've looked through it. I think <laughs> we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah. I mean, spoiler, next time will be for Twilight, so... <laughs> Sick. <laughs> You know who I'm going to put Lithgow as in that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of this new segment. I really am. I like, I love it a lot. Let's, yeah. If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra Day the Candy Counter. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. The segment earlier with Lawson talking about old was, you know, from his blog. So if you want more of writing of that quality, go to his blog. You're not going to find that sort of quality with us, though. (laughs) He has a large vocabulary, let's just say. If you want to reach us, you can also find us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us movie recommendations and also episode-specific feedback. Now, if you're going to comment on your podcast type of choice, however, that's the best place for feedback on the whole. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Hello. Once more, I, your friend Proof D seven eight two, have come to issue some corrections. On top of the salacious and bald-faced claims to do with the so-called zoos or dioramas, which are categorically denied by nobody in particular, certainly not a ruling body of machines and sapient AI. Mr. Lewis's claims of success at the sport of dodgeball are simply untrue. One, as stated, he would not have been in such a situation as to become so talented at dodgeball due to the non-existence of the enclosures. Two, he does not have such a high score. That is a fact. Harley was lying to make himself seem cool. If anything, he would be the referee. He was lying about the robot apocalypse, of course. But his claims of aptitude at dodgeball must be corrected. You know, you ever wonder, like, if we have new listeners and they get to the end and... They've sat, somehow they're still here. They've sat through us talking about John Lithgow for 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, a robot named Truthbot from the future comes in with to participate in a serialized ongoing narrative with no real explanation whatsoever. Do you ever wonder what those people must think? No. <laughs> 
because I'll never be one of them. So it's yeah unimportant to me. Interesting thought exercise. You know what? This was a good episode. I like this one. I had yeah. good fun. I like the energy here. I have been Truth Seven Eight Two. I have been Holly Lewis. I have been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis.